Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis, CEO of ValueBase. Welcome to Assessment Matters, a podcast dedicated to exploring the world of mass appraisal. Whether you are a property appraiser, real estate professional, or just interested in the topic, this podcast will provide you with valuable insight and expert perspectives on the latest trends and developments in the field. We're here today at in Dallas at the Renaissance Hotel uh, at TAD, Texas Appraisal District Conference. Yeah, it's going great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Lars, do you mind giving us uh, a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in in appraisal? Yeah. So I'm uh, CTO of ValueBase. And uh, what I mostly do for ValueBase is I work on um, the software side of our products, on the modeling, as well as the programming, the visualizations, <clears throat> and that sort of thing. I wrote a book called Land is a Big Deal, Why Rent is Too High, Wages Too Low, and What We Can Do About It. I'm very interested in land economics and the modeling side, uh, obtaining accurate values and kind of pushing forward the state of the art. And uh, that's kind of the, the big ideas that I'm interested in, as well as just the historical, just an entire historical sweep of the science of appraisal and real estate valuation in general. That sounds great. And you're an Aggie as well, kind of appropriate for this Texas conference, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Class of 06. Uh, my undergraduate was in architecture, uh, master's degree in visualization sciences. So. Love it. Love it. Well, um, Lars, I'm curious, do you mind talking a little bit about the history of appraisal and, and how things have evolved over time? Yeah. And so what I can do is I can talk about a specific um, early appraisal method that is kind of... Um, you don't see it brought up a lot in modern appraisal literature, but um, it's, it's a very interesting model that I think has some lessons for the modern day, and it's called the Summers System of Real Estate Valuation, and it dates back to the just the dawn of the 20th century. So, like, um, you have people using it in the early 1900s, but through the adjoining decades. Um, it was very popular in its time, and it's, it's almost forgotten now, and I think it's um, Bears kind of doing a little bit of a deep dive on it. Can you talk a little bit about the summer system and just uh, what it was, why it was developed, and kind of how it worked? Yeah. So there's this guy called W.A. Summers, S-O-M-E-R-S, that um, is whom it's named after. And there's this company that it's associated with, Manufacturer's Appraisal Company, that was a company that would go around and do um, um, appraisals uh, for local governments. And they were one of the big... those That individual and that corporation were very associated with the um, the summer system. And you have to keep in mind, early then, back in those days, there was not a lot of um, science behind appraisal at the time. It was, it was very ad hoc. Um, and, you know, this is around the time where, you know, urban structures are really starting to reflect the results of the Industrial Revolution. So before that, like real estate appraisal, like most real estate value had been in, you know, agricultural farmland, and now it's moving to these urban centers. Right. And so the summer system is a way for people of this era to like start grappling with that. And we tend to think, you know, as moderns that, you know, um, science was invented like 15 years ago, sort of. Like, right, it's brand new. It's, it's kind of like present is biased, but... Um, yes, What's really interesting is going back, like how sophisticated methods they even had back then um, for valuing real estate. And what was really particularly interesting about the summer system, it was a system specifically designed to value land separately from buildings, which is something a lot of people struggle with even today. Yeah. And, um, you know, this grew out of the whole Georgia single tax movement at the time, which was very interested in, in um, you know, basically passing exemptions on, on 
the building component of property taxes. Right. And so there's a lot of demand for knowing just what the land was worth. Makes sense. And so the basic idea behind the summer system, what's kind of funny about it is that it used a very kind of wisdom of the crowds approach. Interesting. Um, there, there are two approaches to it. So first was getting inputs about what the property values might be worth. And the basic approach there was to do this like series of cascading surveys. And then the other part, the kind of scientific part was coming up with a standardized unit and a standardized way of applying those inputs and extrapolating them to the whole city. So basically, it might be better to understand what happened before this is that you had a lot of kind of ad hoc opinions of an appraisers before the summer system where it's like, well, I think this property is worth this and I think it's worth that. And there wasn't always necessarily methodology behind it. With the summer system, what they wanted to make sure was, um, okay, we are going to survey all the people who live in this community and they're going to identify what's the most high value street. Right. And, um, and then if we have any transactions, we're going to collect those. We're going to collect that all as evidence. And it's, it's almost like a little bit of a tournament. Well, street A is more expensive than street B. Street B is more expensive than street C. Right. We have a transaction for this street, you know, and all of that. And then once they had all those inputs and they would just do this just by like publishing notices in the newspapers and just like inviting people to just like submit all this feedback. Yeah. And surprisingly it worked, you know, they got all this community feedback and then they would have this kind of mechanistic aspect. That was the second phase. Right. Where basically their standardized unit was one front foot with um, so much depth behind it. I think it was like a hundred feet, right? Yes. So one front foot versus a hundred deep. Right. They would then uh, collect inputs of that value, kind of like find value per that unit. Yeah. And then apply it across the city. And they had methods and formulas for like, okay, how do you adjoin a corner lot? You know, well, it would be kind of this blending between that front foot value of the two streets that it was on, like a valuable street and a less valuable right. street. The corner would like kind of be blended from there. And then for lots that were deeper, you know, there was this kind of valuation curve they would have. Right. Whereas you got further into the lot, like, you know, the value would increase or decrease according yeah. to this multiplier. And um, what's really interesting about this model is that it was something that was done before computers were invented. Like we have, interesting. We have records of this being used in like 1909, right? And then going on to be used for decades. And um, the advocates of this said that it's like they would get the same valuations they were very, very close to what um, real estate agents at the time, when they would like put things up for listing, you know, yeah. their their professional estimates they would make knowing the market would be very close to the summer system valuations. So even before we had computers, they had this way of, of valuing real estate and not just real estate, but separating the land value out from the buildings, which was which is really kind of interesting. The other aspect of it that does bear mentioning is that at the time, you know, the cities were smaller, right? And um, the economy was less complex. And so, um, but it, it is kind of interesting that, you know, even despite their more primitive methods, they were able to kind of meet the burden they had at the time, like quite effectively. And uh, that's what I find really interesting about um, the summer system is that you, you don't see it talked about a lot in the literature. And I think um, there's some modern methods that kind of rhyme with it. You tend to see these used a lot in developing countries where they don't have a lot of information. Gotcha. They rely on a lot of local knowledge. I've read some papers out of the Philippines and Turkey and um, um, and I forget where else that have used something similar to this. I think it's called the analytic hierarchy process. Gotcha. Where, where they basically work out something like the summer system that involves um, 
doing a lot of progressive surveying of the community to figure out what these values are worth. Makes sense. What can we kind of learn from the summer system and, and what can we do to apply, apply it today in, you know, what lessons can we draw? What can we, and, and what can we draw from those lessons to apply in modern kind of mass appraisal? Well, so one of the things I'm interested in is like right now we, um, right now we're, we're very dependent on transactions to evaluations. And I think that's good. I think that's one way in which, you know, we, we've really grounded our field scientifically. The more we can look at transactions, the better. I do think it's interesting and I do think it's kind of challenging to the conventional wisdom that these people were able to use community surveys to get feedback. I think what's interesting about it is looking at it through another lens, they had kind of front-loaded the protest process, if you think about it, yeah, right? You know, they said, here's what the valuations are going to be. And if you have any objections, please bring your evidence. And so right. people would come in and be like, well, I bought this property for this, or I saw that it sold, or, you know, what do you mean that street is worth more than this street? Don't you know this bit of local knowledge that'll yeah. change your opinion on it? And there would be all this back and forth for months and months and months and months. And so I'm... I don't know if that's where the modern pro if there's any like actual descendants there to our modern like right. property tax protest thing, but that rhymes a lot with how um for a lot of appraisal districts like the um the protest process is part and parcel with the evidence gathering. Yeah. Right? You know, if someone wants their property tax bill lowered, it's like, "Well, show me some evidence." Right. And then they're like, "Well, here's some evidence." You're like, "Oh, well, that's very reasonable, Mr. Smith." You know, I'm I'm convinced because the evidence says so. And um there's kind of a phrase we have on the internet is that the easiest way to get accurate information on the internet is to post incorrect information right. because then someone will immediately come and correct you, right? Right, right? You know, nobody loves to comment on something more than when they get to correct someone. Yeah. And so it seems like an early incarnation of that. So I think there's that lesson. The other aspect is the fact that they were valuing land separately from buildings because, you know, a lot of people like see this as something that's really challenging and it's really interesting to see people doing these valuations with pen and paper in 1909. Right. And arriving at values that were very similar to what the real estate agents at the time were charging. And so what I think it teaches us is that there's that old lesson that realtors are always saying is location, location, location. Yeah. And the community knows what its locations are worth, right? And so if you... Um, if, you, if we can find ways to listen to our communities and kind of get at that information, I think we can find that those locational signals are quite strong if we know how to listen for them. And um, I think kind of moving towards these more land-first valuation models, not necessarily recommending that anyone use the summer system today, but understanding inherently that location is what drives, you know, the, the, the lion's share of value can kind of flip valuation on its head rather than kind of seeing everything as like building first and then how do we adjust for the locations because you know what comes out of marshall and swift is kind of off from this because our we've had this huge market swing right you know it's 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 probably the location you know which is to say the land value that's that's gone up dramatically you know and so in that sense what that tells me is i'm very interested in new models that do things like paired sales analysis where we find similar buildings in different parts of the district that are very similar in terms of their structure, but in completely different locations, you know, and you can just do this at home where you see that, you know, a certain house, you know, single family home, you know, with this many bedrooms sold for say a hundred thousand in Texas. And then you go and find it in San Francisco and it's 1.1 million. Right. It's, it's probably not 1 million more in terms of like work that's been done to the house. It's that location right, right. That, that's, that's a premium. 
And I think, I think, you know, if they could do it without computers in 1909, like probably we can do it today with all of the advanced statistical methods that are at our disposal. Absolutely. So that's, um, that's, that's something that's really intriguing to me. That's interesting. Um, you wrote a book on land. Can you talk about location land and how much, you know, how big of a deal is it? How much does it actually take up in, in terms of the real economy? How much of real assets are, is land and locational value? Right. So one thing I don't think a lot of people realize is that a lot of people, we've been pitched that we live in this new technological world, right? right. You know, like Mark Zuckerberg's going on about the metaverse and, you know, we're all going to like live in this, this complete virtual world, right? We work from home, right. you, know, you Zoom, you yeah. Uber, you... These things happen, yeah. DoorDash, all this stuff. But if you take all the world's wealth and you decompose it into what we call real assets in economics, and real assets is stuff that the paper at the end of the day actually points to, like actual atoms of real tangible wealth. Right. Two-thirds of that is real estate. Yeah. Even today, especially today, real estate is the world's biggest asset class. And fully half of that real estate value is just land value, just location, just dirt. You know, um, people often talk about how like Bill Gates is one of the world's largest owners of farmland. I think he's the largest owner of farmland in America. Um, but he's, I think, I don't have the figures in front of me. He's like the 25th biggest landowner overall. But, um, um, but people like Jeff Bezos and Ted Turner are up there in the top 10 easily. They own a ton of land. And uh, rich people, they, they think a lot of their um, net worth into land, and it makes sense because, as the old saying goes, um, buy land. It's the only thing they're not making any more of, you know? When society gets more productive, basically, a lot of that value that society, since all of society's improvements, um, it tends to make um, real estate values go up. That's why when you have really, really, really high productive cities like New York and... Or here in Dallas. Yeah, or here in Dallas or Houston or... or 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 out in California, or whatever you know, the real estate value shoot up. Like London, that's why no one can afford to live in London, right. is because so much money moves through London, right? And um, you know, because land is kind of scarce, the a larger amount of money chasing a scarce fixed asset um, causes its value to really go up. And um, so, not only is real estate two thirds of bank loans and like a third of, I mean, sorry, two thirds of real assets. And a third of that real assets is just land. Um, it's the same thing when we talk about financing and bank loans, like I just had my little slip there. Is It's the same picture. Two-thirds of bank loans are just bidding up the price of real estate. And so what's, what's really funny is like when banks give everyone all these loans, um, basically they give you a nice loan so you can go and buy that house. Well, they also gave the guy who is bidding against you a big loan too. And so that's driving the price up too. And so when interest rates go up and down and change how much people can afford to borrow, the real estate market responds immediately. Yes. But um, you kind of lose either way it goes because if interest rates are low, you can borrow a lot, which means so can the other guy. Right. When real estate selling prices go up. Exactly. And then when interest rates go down, I mean, and then when interest rates go up, then people can't afford to borrow as much. So the selling prices come down. But then you're forking out for, you know, a five, six, seven, eight percent mortgage. Right, exactly. You know, so you're, you're, you're paying out that way. Um, so real estate's a huge part of the modern economy. You know, there's these, these graphs I can show you in my book that show where real asset wealth used to be held. And so you go back to like the 1600s. I mean, it was all farmland, right? That's how the king used to be rich in the days is that he just lorded it over a bunch of peasants, right? Right. 
you know, you just had all these like amber waves of grain, you yes, know, at yeah, its disposal. Exactly. That that that's where your wealth used to be. And that wealth disparity has now shifted to basically uh residential land, and especially residential land in big cities. Yeah. Because those um that that residential land is very close to jobs. Yeah. You know, and what's really interesting is when you start to see these effects, you understand how the, you know, in appraisal, we understand that a lot of the amenity value is what drives real estate, right? A good school district will lead to higher values, you know? And as people are able to um, get access to better jobs, you know, people are able to have higher salaries. Well, then they have more money to bid up housing and more people move in, right? As all these Californians coming over with all the California money, right. you know, they're competing against Texans. They're driving the real estate values up. So that's, that's kind of how it all fits into the economy. Just, I mean, it's right there in the title, right? Land is a big deal. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what things have you learned about, you know, uh, appraising land independently of buildings from going about this project, learning about land itself and, and how it differs from um, capital? Right. So, let me, let me tackle that last question there. Okay, so the difference between land and capital. A lot of people will treat land as if it's the same thing as capital. And so just a quick, quick dictionary lesson. Capital, the term comes from, it means Latin for by head. And we think of it as like money, but what it really means is like wealth that helps you get more wealth. Yes. And the original example of this is cattle. So capital means by the head. So it was like, how many head of cattle do you have? It's quite pertinent uh, being here in Texas right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like cows make baby cows. Like that That was how you regarded a man's wealth in whether it was medieval England or or, or Africa or, you know. Or Perhaps even, the ranch right out here, yeah. Or, yeah, even ranch ranches in Texas, you know, in, in the 1800s, 1900s, even today. Yeah. You know, and um, the thing about capital is that, you know, um, it depreciates right? Your cows get sick, they get old, they die. Right. You know, if you don't constantly reinvest it and replenish it, you know, it, it, it falls down to nothing over time. Yes. Um, whether you're talking about, you know, a building you've built or, uh, you know, a herd of cattle or like the source code to windows 95, right. Which is not worth much today. Exactly. You know, um, or your car, a car is a great example of capital. It's yes. like, it's you do wealth with it. yeah. that lets you get more wealth by like being able to commute to a job. And everyone knows the second you drive that car off the lot, its value goes down by like about half. Yeah. And so the same thing with real estate. What's interesting is it's a combination of capital and land, right? A yeah. depreciating asset, which is your house, and a kind of fundamentally scarce asset that everybody needs, which is land. Yes. And this is kind of where it becomes tricky to appraise these because um, people say, well, how much is my house worth? Right. And they don't realize that their house is two things. Their house is the building and the house is the land. And so a realtor recently like put a packet on my doorstep the other day wanting to buy my house. And it was interesting because at current prices, I could no longer afford to purchase my house if I didn't already own it. Oh my. Which I mean, which is good news for my equity, right? Exactly. But it's really interesting because I was kind of confused at first because I was like, I have not put this much work into the house. I know that the house house, the structure is a money pit right? because I've had problems with the water heater and my kids have been destroying everything, you know, and I, God bless them. But, you know, that's just how they are when they're young. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, like, we've just sunk all kinds of money just to keep it where it was. Like, it's no nicer than when we moved in. It's like a little worse, actually. Right, right, right. <laughs> and we've sunk, like, you know, tens of thousands into maintenance. Yeah. But it's gone up by, like, two or three times what I've put into it. Right. And I've just kept it afloat. So 
where does that extra value come from? It's because more people are moving in and want to live where I live. Yes. They're bidding really on the land. Right. And um, so that's kind of how my, my personal experience of it has been. And a lot of people have had this experience, you know? And uh, yeah, so that's, that's how I, I would say like my personal experience with it has been. Let's played into it. That makes sense. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about here at this conference today about just the massive upswing in the markets over the past couple of years. Um, you know, do you see that trend continuing over time? You see that abating as interest rates kind of you know cut down on some of those those loans that are bidding up the the price of location over time. Well, as Yogi Berra said, it's hard to make predictions about things, especially the future. Yes. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, in the sh I, I'm not sure where any short-term movement is going to yeah. wiggle, but, um, but we know a couple of things tend to increase the price of real estate. So if these things happen, I would expect prices to continue to rise. Yeah. And the first one is population growth. So, I mean, if your population goes down, real estate prices will probably go down too. Gotcha. But if your population's increasing... And that seems to be the case all over Texas, especially with all these migrants coming over from California and other places. Um, your your property rates are going to go up. Second is if you know productivity, by which we mean like people have higher incomes. Yes. So if your population stays the same, but people's incomes are going up. Yeah. Then also your property prices are going to go up. Makes sense. Right. And then the other thing is uh, interest rates. Like I said, like. Um, they can like change, they, they basically change the trade off between sales price and like how much you're paying per month in your mortgage. Yeah. But that's kind of an illusion about whether the property is like more expensive. It's just like, how do you want to pay on the front end or the back end? Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. But they do affect it because of the degree to which banks and the loans and the credit they give out right. basically affects people's uh, ability to pay, right? That way. Um, so yeah, but the the other thing is technological change because this affects people's productivity, right? Yeah, like remote work or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like if technological change allows it so that I can have a job, like like say you work for a San Francisco startup 30 years ago, you had or 20 years ago, 10 years ago, you had to be on site. Yes. Now you can keep that San Francisco tech job. Right. And live in Houston or in the or in Bryan College Station. Yes. Or Anywhere there's good internet. Right. And so whether you were a native Texan and just got a job in New York or in San Francisco, or you were a tech worker who moved over here and kept your old job, yes, you're now able to use that higher tech salary to bid up local real estate. Right. And that, of course, also jacks up the prices. So I would say technological changes um, um, improve like higher incomes and increasing productivity and then increasing population. All of those things will, will serve to jack up real estate prices. That makes sense. So, uh, it sounds like Western Europe over time, we'll see uh, declining, uh, on, on the long-term trend, we'll see declining real estate values. Well, and, unless they see, you know, ex well, except migrants from, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or something like that. Yeah. Well, it depends. It depends. It depends on their immigration policies. Right. So like, um, if Western Europe declines in population and productivity, yes, um, which is to say if their incomes go down and their population goes down, yes, the real estate prices will go down. That will then attract people who are interested in moving there because it's affordable and we'll see if that like buoys it up. But like a good example in like America right now of a city this is happening to, a classic example is Detroit, right? Um, you know, D D Detroit has fallen on hard times. It used to be a, a boom city. Actually, it's interesting enough, like tying back to the topic at hand, like in the early um, turn of the 
20th century, I think they actually used the summer system. Oh, really? They had, uh, I mean, Detroit used to be a huge success story back in the day before they had some mid-steps. Um, it's the auto industry. Before everything collapsed, right? But like early on for decades, they were a model city. In fact, Henry Ford intentionally put his factories there because of the reforms made by Mayor, um, I'm going to try and get the name right, Hazen Pingree. So Hazen Pingree was this aficionado of the single taxers, you know, the Henry George movement. And he had a lot of property tax reforms there where like they didn't tax buildings, but they did just like they tried to push the tax base off of built structures, which is capital. Yes. And on to fixed structures, you know, the fixed assets of the land. And that created a real building boom there. And that was very attractive to investors like Henry Ford. Right. And they used the summer system evaluation, I believe. Another place they did it was Cleveland, Ohio under Mayor Tom Johnson, who received the moniker, the best mayor of the best governed city in the United States. Wow. And they had a building boom there. Um, Al Smith in New York, early on in the 20th century, he had another one of these um, kind of tax reform policies where um, it wasn't a full universal building exemption, but it was an exemption on property taxes on the building structure value of all new construction. Gotcha. And at a time when populations were declining in other big cities, they were all shooting up. Um, we even had one here in Houston. Um, mayor J.J. Pastoriza, who was Houston's first um, Hispanic mayor, back when he was commissioner, he had a similar property tax reform where, and again, it wasn't a full universal building exemption, but it was really close to it, where he exempted like 70, it was like it was like 25% of the value of the building and 75% the value of the land. Or something like that. So they primarily tax the uh, the land, not rather not. than the building, right? Like they mostly exempted the buildings, and so guess what? You had a huge building boom in Houston. Gotcha. And it, it was pretty short lived, but they did use the summer system for their valuation. And Pastoriza um, was a big uh, popularizer of the system. And so these people were all together, and, and so like you you saw like Cleveland, Ohio, and Detroit back in its golden era, and and Houston, like all these places were growing when while other places were shrinking, and. Um, yeah, so I forgot the original question, but... No, 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 it makes a lot of sense. Well, um, Lars, you know, you've talked to a lot of appraisers. You've talked to a lot of people in the assessment industry. Uh, where do you think the field's going over the next 10 years? Well, I think it's going towards more technology for sure, right? You know, one of the things we're seeing is that we're, we're kind of at an era where a lot of appraisers are retiring. Yes. You know, and um, also... You know, like I said, with the summer system, they didn't have computers then, but they also didn't have the populations we have, and they didn't have the complexity we have. They, I mean, I, I'm not sure when the first true skyscraper was built. Yes. But, um, you know, they, they certainly didn't have, you know, um, the, the, you know, they didn't have the World Trade Center and, and uh, the Empire State Building quite yet right. um, back in 1909, I think, right? Something like that. <laughs> Check me on that. But, yeah, I mean... If they did, those things were new, right? And nowadays, those kind of things like, you know, you've got like a huge high-rise apartment with how many units in it? Yeah. Right? And, you know, cities with millions of people in them. Right. So I think just we're moving more towards automated valuation models. But one thing that I think there's a lot of pushback on, and rightfully so, is how they're very black boxy, right? And everyone wants to kind of keep... Everyone wants to keep their secret sauce to themselves and like... You know, one of the advantages of the summer system is that it was so open and transparent and like the community was involved in it. And so I think the future is more technology, but also more open technology, more transparent, explainable, auditable technology. Makes sense. 
And I think there is more going to be more of a move to land first valuation because a lot of these huge property swings that are throwing people for a loop are really land booms. Right. You know, it's like, um, and I think shifting to that kind of paradigm is going to give us more accurate valuations overall. Makes sense. Makes sense. I really love that. Well, Lars, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, for, for you, I, I got to say, if you, you want to find out more about Lars, you can just visit valuebase.co and you can find out more there. Great. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Assessment Matters. Come back next week for another episode. You can check out our website to find show notes, videos, tr- transcripts, and more at valuebase.co slash podcast.